Hi, this is Sarah Tebow. And this is Liz Bernstein, and we are the hosts of the Side Woo Podcast. This is a space to investigate what makes a creative life possible. From the mundane to the sublime, the physical to the metaphysical. Welcome to the Side Woo. Hello, Side Wooers. This is Sarah. This week, we have an amazing guest. He's super smart and was really wonderful to talk to, really insightful. His name is Raghu Apasani, and he is trying to revolutionize the medical health industry from the inside out. He's an integrative and addiction psychiatrist, psychotherapist, neuroscientist, author and producer, and entrepreneur. He began studying neuroscience in the 10th grade. Yes, 10th grade. We can all feel really bad about our lives. Um, And has since gone on to do many tenures, including now serving as the chief medical officer of PIM, which stands for Prepare Your Mind. And it's a wellness brand that produces supplements based on amino acids to support mental health. It was founded by Robin Williams' son, Zach Williams. I am personally very obsessed with using amino acids as a tool to support mental wellness and talk about it in the episode, but I relied on them a lot after reading The Mood Cure, which I have passed on to many a friend. I'm really excited to see them taking off in the marketplace because I found that they are a little bit neglected in the vitamin aisle. So that said, none of our conversation should be interpreted as medical advice or therapy. So please consult your physician before bringing any new dietary supplement into your life. You know, and we always love comments or questions. So feel free to email us at thesidewoo at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram at thesidewoo. Thank you for listening. And now on to the show. My mom just sent me my um, birth time, so I need to. Oh, hey! Should we? Should that I, be the first thing we do? Is look up your astro chart? Yeah. Well, she said, "I believe you were born at seven o three." Okay, hold on accuracy, one second. Check your birth certificate. <laughs> Power mom move. That is I was hard. like, "How do you? You have two children." <laughs> There's a lot going on in that moment. I know. I know. <laughs> it's it's a very like one might have forgotten to. Look, I mean, yeah. There's a lot going on. No, it's totally <laughs> fine. She's lovely. I love her. Yeah, my and my mom has absolutely no idea when I was born. Yeah, if that makes you feel better. When my son was <laughs> yeah. born, I was obsessed with looking at the clock. Um, Ragu, so what was your birthday? November 30th, 1989. What? I am a Sagittarius, but it's not yeah. the Yeah, okay. I didn't think about what I thought you were. Before I normally kind of do a dig into people's. Oh, no, no. I, I saw the question. I was like, I had to figure this out. <laughs> I am also a morning baby. Almost yeah. everybody's a morning baby. Yeah. I think the moms try to like get through as much sleep as they can. And then. <laughs> well, I think your your body. You're like, I'm ready to come into the world. Well, it affects where your son is. I think your body wants to labor at night. And so, like, mm-hmm. in, in the dark hours is when things get the most active. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, So, oh, wow. I feel like I want to psychoanalyze you now. You have a massive stellium in your first house. 
and your sun is conjunct your ascendant and in the 12th house. So that's some intense shit right there. But Do you want to bring that up on this podcast and then we can talk about it? Because I don't know what that is. Yeah, and, uh, probably we pre- don't have time, <laughs> but... Um, send it to me. Yeah, I'll, I'll send that to you. But so basically, yeah, your sun is in Sagittarius, your moon is in Sagittarius, and your ascendant is in Sagittarius. So you are a triple fire threat. Holy crap. We are recording. I mean... Yeah. yeah. Well, so basically what... Sagittarius's are they rule the ninth house and they're like they're an arrow so it's kind of this idea of being slingshot like an arrow shooting out and so people my sister has a Sagittarius moon sorry Kate I'm going to talk about you but Mm -hmm. there's kind of this sense of like feeling really distant and alien to your surroundings a lot of times with Sagittarius Mm -hmm. like you're Mm -hmm. kind of like on another planet because it rules long distance travel and learning new things, higher education. So having all those things means like the good part is your identity is really integrated with like how you feel and how other people see you because all those things are aligned. Um, But also maybe being frustrated with the status quo. Yeah, I think that definitely. And <laughs> like it would make sense. Like the mental health care system. <laughs> exactly. And like doing a wanting to do a lot of travel and mm-hmm. learning about higher concepts, that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, like, um, you have a I'm lot. Super I've bummed. never seen that many planets in a first house before. You should actually get a legit reading and find out more about what that is. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Because first house is your house of identity. Yeah. Yeah. Self. Yeah. Well, let me know if you have a um, person in particular that you I do actually trust and like up here. Yeah. Okay. I will. I'll send you that. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me and, and, yeah. and reaching out. Um, Thank you. We yeah. are introduced by our mutual friend, Chris. He's an amazing guy <laughs> who also cool. travels a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe we can start since we went down the sun sign route. If you could just describe where you're at in terms of like spiritual practices or emotional well-being right now. Yeah, that was a really interesting question to think about. And um, I am on a continuous journey of exploring what well-being actually means to me. And it is a word that continues to change almost on a daily basis of what that encompasses. But spirituality is a strong component of that. Before we were so rudely interrupted by my internet, we were talking about your current emotional spiritual state. And maybe just introduce yourself a little bit. Okay, sure. I'm Raghu Apasani, and I'm a Bay Area new resident, I guess, relative to others and originally from Boston. And I am a integrative addiction psychiatrist, psychotherapist, have been on this path that's stemming from from one vision or one goal, which is how do we understand and how do we enhance the human experience? And you do a lot of that through storytelling. And selfishly, as a psychiatrist therapist, I get to be a part of people's stories. And so I've found that to be really special and also a a privilege to be a part of someone's story and maybe even a sliver of a chapter in their life. And 
that's pretty amazing. And if we can learn from one another what those stories are, then we can enhance our own experience with ourselves and with others and with the world and the environment that we live in. And so that's really what drives me. And, you know, I don't want to get too technical about the day-to-day stuff, but that's, that's the mission is like, we're all here for some purpose. And so let's make the best of it. And let's also be in it collectively together. And it does bring me to what we were speaking about earlier about what is a well-being practice? What does that mean? What is my spiritual practice? And so I didn't necessarily grow up with an ingrained spiritual practice. My, my dad's a scientist. And so he very much takes that scientific fact-based method, even like calling himself a Darwinist growing up. But within my family, coming from a South Asian background, there was a lot of elements of Hindu traditions and culture. There was a few folks like my grandmother and and others in the family that also were Christian. And one thing I'll say is that I really don't see something like Hinduism as a religion. This might be a controversial statement, but I feel like it was really when the British showed up in India that they were like, what is going on here? We have to label these traditions as something and they labeled it as Hinduism as a religion. But it's really, there's a lot of traditional cultural practices and there's like the Yoga Sutras and the all of these texts, they're not religious texts necessarily. They're texts that were developed by people to bring morality and lessons and enhance experience in life. And so... I personally started digging deeper into those things and into the Bhagavad Gita when I was middle school, high school, and I started to read it, not in the sense of finding or searching for a higher being, but to just understand and to understand the beauty in those words and the meanings and the emotions between those words. And I think it's important to read a variety of texts to formulate the type of spirituality that resonates with your own body. And that's really what I've been able to do and I continue to do to this day is just really picking up what speaks to me and understanding it and not necessarily adhering to one certain perspective or guru or whatever it is, but like, how am I feeling today? And how am I feeling this year? What are my goals? And what can I pull from these different aspects? And so there's some practical elements to it. I do have a meditation practice, I do have a journaling practice. Spirituality is something that everyone has, and we're on different spectrums of what that means to us at any point in our life. Well, I think you are a person of the time and the place. Like that is a very modern approach, right? The shopping cart method of spirituality, a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of Judaism, which I'm Jewish and Mm -hmm. I have gone to a lot of like, you know, Dharma talk, but the the shopping cart approach where, you know, you can accept and reject. And I feel like that is a little bit of a segue into your approach with PYM and mud water. Mm. And I'd love for you to talk about those products Mm -hmm. a little bit, but I think that the kind of the shopping cart approach where you can pick up something like the PYM adding one element into a life that where the goal is to bring more of a neuro piece into Mm -hmm. your, into your day to day. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I traditionally trained through a Western medical school system, which I'm very appreciative of, and it's a privilege to be able to have that opportunity. And then went into psychiatry for a lot of the reasons that we've been speaking about, which is the aspect of storytelling 
But I quickly realized that the methods of treatment we have are not the greatest. I, I think that connecting with one another, we can do that. But pharmacologically, there's benefits for certain medications for certain people, but I don't see them necessarily as the long-term answer. And I've been driven by this, this idea of like, how do we allow for more prevention? How do you make someone feel empowered to actually care for their well-being and their mental health? And I've been able to do that through the Minds Foundation, which is a nonprofit that I've been working on for the past 13 years, learning a lot from folks in rural India of what works. And a lot of that is connection and deep connection and supporting one another. And a few years ago, I met Zach Williams, the, the son of the late and, you know, inspiring Robin Williams that we all share, you know, deep in our heart. And Zach and I met through our work in the mental health advocacy field. And mm -hmm. he's been doing some incredible work domestically and internationally to advocate for mental health policy change and support. And I was working on Minds Foundation and we went through a mutual community and just really resonated on how we saw the landscape for mental health and how we wanted to really change it and, and disrupt it in some ways. And Zach had come up with the company Prepare Your Mind or PIM. And the whole basis was that he was able to gain a lot of support through amino acids mm -hmm. and supplementation, encouraged by his wife, Olivia June. And so I had the opportunity to come on board to work with PIM and help to develop the company. And also come up with developing a lot of the products that we have out there right now mm -hmm. and formulating those. And our goal with it is not to say the existing system doesn't work. It does for a lot of people, but there's a lot of changes that need to happen. And are you talking about SSRIs or are you talking about the whole healthcare industry? Yes, the existing system of the current methods of treatment and algorithms in psychiatry. Maybe could we back up? If you could briefly talk about Zach Williams' work, if people don't know, it's focused around suicide prevention, then talk mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. what products you're actually offering through Prepare Your Mind. Sure. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is I heard you were creating these amino acid chews, and I really relied heavily on amino acids. Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, my therapist had given me the mood cure. And I think yes. she's like the pioneer of the amino acids to help with false mm -hmm. moods as she describes them. So Zach Williams, the son of the late Robin Williams, and I met through our work in the mental health advocacy space. He was doing a lot to help promote policy change and systems change to allow for better resources and support for those struggling with poor mental health and specifically around suicide. And one of the resources that we really spoke about was amino acids. And for Zach, I don't want to speak for him, but he'll, he would share this as well, is that amino acids really did help him to get through a lot of anxiety and PTSD. They've also helped me historically to deal with a lot of anxiety as well, specifically going through medical school and all of what that entailed. And, and then Zach's wife, Olivia June, as well, similar story, right? Where did they learn about it first? So Olivia actually was given GABA from a physician. In the Bay Area? or Because where, where is that happening? I don't remember if it was the Bay Area or, or Southern California, but that's kind of what it takes, right? Is like someone who's thinking a little bit differently and is like, hey, maybe you should try this. Definitely. Because I definitely did not get GABA from my therapist in New York. So 
<laughs> yeah, and so this brings me to the purpose of of why I took the opportunity to work with Zach and Olivia on PIM or Prepare Your Mind. And it was that in my training in psychiatry, there's some forms of algorithm to it. You score this number on this survey, and then maybe we'll prescribe you an SSRI like Prozac or Lexapro or Zoloft. And some people might get better, others might not. Those medications, they can be very helpful for certain people. Yes, they can be really helpful if you have severe depression and we need to get you across the bridge so that you can start to engage in therapy, engage in a lot of other modalities. But for a vast majority that are dealing with day-to-day distress, it isn't necessarily the answer. And amino acids can be very helpful. And so... And maybe you could talk about what is it that they do, the science behind that? Yeah. So so uh, the concept of why, you know, I, I believe amino acids are helpful and thinking about it from a scientific perspective is that if you think about what an amino acid is, it's the building blocks of your body, right? So you gain amino acids through sources like food. You also have them intrinsically already within your body. They're the bricks that you put together and make proteins. And then proteins are the basis of neurotransmitters that we hear about like serotonin and dopamine, adrenaline, oxytocin. They also make hormones when they come together. They also make proteins that are like your muscle, your body, all of it. So amino acids, like without them, you would like disintegrate into the abyss. And so they're super important. Now, one of the things that we notice in modern day society, specifically with the Western diet and the Western lifestyle, is that a large number of people have amino acid deficiencies. And when you have amino acid deficiencies, you start to have symptoms like fatigue and poor sleep, maybe disrupted eating behaviors or cravings or depression. Mm. Is there a test for that or how, how did you figure that out? Or how has the study has done that? Yeah, it's, it is difficult to test for it, but you can do laboratory testing to look at amino acid levels. I would say the, the book, The Mood Cure, for example, they were able to highlight just through a lot of case studies mm. and trial and error, making these relationships based on symptoms and then what subtypes of supplementation of amino acids were helpful. Well, yeah. In the mood cure, she explains that like the way food is engineered is actually the reason that there's less of the amino acids in our diet. Mm -hmm. People have been eating the same thing for, you know, hundreds, thousands of years. Why are we the first generation to notice that this is missing. Exactly. So that's the problem, right? Is like, yeah, yeah, we basically have engineered natural sources of food, which are natural sources of amino acids and modified them and denatured them. That's one part of it. The second piece of it too, is that our modern day stressors too, in terms of environmental toxins and the way we have relationships with one another, that also does take a different level of stress mm. on your body that can lead to imbalances or deficiencies in certain amino acids and and hormones and neurotransmitters. So the whole premise is if we take the concept of an SSRI, right? The idea is that it is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, right? The idea is to keep serotonin around longer to be more active. In theory, that makes sense. But then, you know, my question was, wait, why are we doing that? And we're not just like giving someone the building blocks the amino acids for your body to just 
make these things. Right. To make their own serotonin. Exactly. But the language of it sounds a little like getting rid of SSRIs and putting the amino acids sort of in the role of SSRIs rather than those two things being in partnership. Is there any push to say, you know, our vision is to remove SSRIs? Like we would all be better with amino acids. That is that is definitely not the vision that I would promote as a provider, as a clinician, or as an advocate. I think it's that we need a toolkit because one thing is not going to be the solution for every single person. I've worked with many individuals, you know, whether it was in the LA County setting or the San Francisco general emergency setting or outpatient where someone is chronically suicidal and very severely depressed and something like an SSRI is helpful, right? Amino acids and a lot of these other modalities, they're also very helpful, but they're more lifestyle interventions and changes that can be helpful as well. You know, these medications, the way I see it is we do need them in these more severe situations, but does someone need to be on it forever? You know, that's a question that we don't have much data on and The best way I try to explain it is if you are so depressed and you're in your bed and you can't get up and people have a lot of physical symptoms as well. They physically can't get up. They stop eating, stop taking care of themselves. They're chronically suicidal. They're in a deep, dark hole where the only way out is death. Giving you an amino acid is not going to necessarily change that immediately. Giving you an SSRI won't change it immediately either, but we can get you across that bridge where we can say you made it across, you're engaged in therapy, you're engaged in social interactions, you're journaling again. Like how do we prevent you now from going back into that state? And that's where we can take a preventative role using things like amino acids and other forms of complementary or supplementary treatment. I do think that there's a role for us to introduce things like amino acids and even in severe cases as an adjunct or as a hand in hand to go with like current treatment options Mm -hmm. and plans too. Poor mental health is caused by a lot of factors, right? A lot of it is societal. Some of it is genetic and biological, but a huge component of it is actually metabolic and nutritional deficiencies that can lead to poor mental health conditions. And so... When we introduce the concept of amino acids, it's to say that, hey, this is a deficiency that is occurring that we know has a direct relationship with poor mental health, right? So let's take, for example, something that's very common, like anxiety, which a medication like Lexapro is often prescribed to help with Mm -hmm. anxiety. We know that GABA, which is one of the most common neurotransmitters in the body, it's also an amino acid is also the number one inhibitory neurotransmitter, which means that when you get anxious or you go into a state of fight or flight, you need GABA to kick in to soothe you and calm you down. Now, a large majority of people have a deficiency in that. And we know that people who have high levels of anxiety have a deficiency in that. Hmm. And we see clinically that giving someone GABA helps to reduce the anxiety. And so 
there's relationships and research like that that's coming out more and more and more recently at a larger scale. So we have more information and evidence to start to promote this more comfortably in the medical space. And that's one of the reasons why there's a larger conversation around this as well. It's not to say Lexapro is not helpful. I have many patients and individuals yeah. in my life where Lexapro is super helpful in things like depression, anxiety, and especially high levels of Lexapro for debilitating OCD, for example. So mm -hmm. there's roles for these things. It's just that we're seeing a rise in people detecting it earlier in their life before mm -hmm. it gets severe. And for those mild and moderate stages, there's a role for things like amino acids to help with mm -hmm. those deficiencies, to help support someone in making in parallel the lifestyle changes that they need to make as well. Because the magic bullet is not a medication. The magic bullet's not an amino acid. It's an overall lifestyle intervention and change that you make for yourself. Having been on Lexapro in New York and then moving to California, losing my insurance at some point in Kaiser, took me off of Lexapro and onto a generic that was a completely different chemical makeup, a non-SSRI. Like they completely changed my prescription mm. in the middle because they wouldn't pay for Lexapro anymore. And I guess they didn't have like a- Equivalent. Anyway, so I was like, well, fuck, I don't know what to do. I'm not going to go on this random drug. I have no idea what it's going to do. Mm -hmm. And so eventually I ended up getting handed the mood cure. And on Lexapro, I had major migraines. I felt like hungover if I missed taking the pill within the exact 24-hour period. Like if I were a couple hours late, I would get these insane withdrawal symptoms. And so I was like, I don't really want to do that anymore. My quality mm. of life is going down rather than being helped by this. So with the things that I took after reading the mood cure and talking with my psychologist, I felt like there was none of that chemical hangover. And I don't know, I just got so much comfort from that process. And there's something about like the, I felt more agency because it was over the counter and it didn't feel like the stakes were so high. Whereas when you take like, you know, something like Lexapro, there's this baggage that comes with it. Like, well, it may do X, Y, Z to you, but at least it's helping your mental health. Thanks for sharing that. And you know, it's not an uncommon experience what you're saying. And it actually brings me to some of my frustrations, which I'm hopefully turning into a passion about the current system, which is that there's not consistency of care, because yeah. a lot of it's run by larger institutions or health insurance dependent situations. And getting cut off from a treatment plan, whether it's a medication or yeah. even therapy or whatever it is, right? I mean, that's the worst thing you can do to someone. I basically went through withdrawal for like a month. I felt nauseous and headachey for an entire and, month. And that can happen for a lot of people. There's actually another company that I've been working with called Outro, and they're working to taper people safely off yeah. SSRIs and then, you know, hopefully some other medications in the future that have become problematic in society as well like things like Xanax or gabapentinoids. Mm. And so the idea is to get people off slowly using this method called hyperbolic tapering, where it can prevent a lot of the symptoms you were describing, like those headaches and the brain zaps and things like that. I am definitely somebody where I feel like Lamictal saved my life. I'm on a very balanced regimen of Lamictal and Prozac. And without the Lamictal, Prozac makes me go manic. And then Lamictal at a much higher dose than the Prozac keeps 
the boundaries of high and low in range. Mm. And I mean, I never want to go off these drugs. Like I never want to, for one minute, choose what it felt like to be literally in a closet, knocking your head against the wall because of just the extreme emotional pain. I would love to add as many things in a tool basket, but I would get a very defensive reaction to anybody like, don't take away my baby. Like we want to take away your drugs. The McDonald <laughs> was there for me, you know? And the goal yeah. is not to take it away. For example, someone with like a mild depressive episode, an understandable depressive reaction to a, a poor traumatic event, right? Did they necessarily have to immediately get onto an SSRI or would they have benefited from having a few extra appointments with their doctor or their therapist to get through it and work through it? Now, that's that's the situation where we say that person may have stayed on an SSRI so long because they're seeing a different general practitioner every single appointment or they don't have consistency in care. No one's really following them or understanding them at a deeper level. And they end up staying on this medication that they don't necessarily need to be on. But to get off of it is scary for the doctor to take it off and also for the individual. And also there's potential side effects of coming off of it. And so it's those types of people that we're saying, hey, there's other potential options we can work with. But Lamictal is pretty awesome. I've used it a lot for individuals. And the last thing I'll add to here on this point is I'm also an addiction psychiatrist, right? And so I deal with people who have been using things like fentanyl and alcohol and sex addiction, all this. And there are medications I prescribe with a lot of confidence for many of these individuals that help like naltrexone or suboxone, for example, and it's transformed their lives like completely, right? They were homeless doing whatever they could to get certain drugs and substances. And now they're married, they're living functional lives, engaged with their family. I feel like I am sitting in between both of you actually. And we're, this is the point. I want to point out that I am not anti-Western medicine because it just didn't help me in the way that I wanted it to, but it did get me over a hurdle. And I think it failed me in that there was no tapering exactly. off. The system wasn't built for any kind of shift. Like I grew out of the system and it didn't know how to handle it. So I'm not against it. Like we've talked about this a lot. Like I am pro Liz doing whatever the fuck she wants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm but. pro Liz. I'm pro Sarah. You know, I grew up where my mom actually had a lot of ingrained Ayurvedic principles and Eastern philosophy, but I went to a Western medical school. And so for me, it's about both of these camps are effective. We need to like cut the bullshit and break down the wall and start working together more. Totally. Right? Yes. That's where it needs to come together. Yes. One thing I do think, there's a history of, of toxicity in the mental health combined with medical space where people envision the suggestions that they're given as just another thing that they're going to fail at. And mm. it's part of the context of the history of trauma associated with the way the medical industry has talked about BMI and weight. Mm. And I was just curious mm. what you hold in your heart as part of wellness and the medical field as your stance on how to discuss BMI and weight, mm. number one, and also just the history of being told how to make changes and then after the 15 minute appointment, you're done unless you have a certain amount of money and great 
health insurance. Like you're very mm-hmm. abandoned. I really yelled at Kaiser about this SSRI thing and they did it maybe two months and then they were like, that's it. And I was in grad school. So I'm like, I do not have time for this shit. I cannot deal with you people. I don't know how to navigate this. But the the BMI and weight thing and the the health at any size movement I'm just curious about how that is. Well, and how is that connected just for context? So the thread is that one of the first interfaces, people who come into contact with a doctor or medical professional psychiatrist is they are told to lose weight and nothing has ever been proven that weight loss works. Weight loss just fails and fails in this cyclical way and focusing on it becomes an impediment to actual peace and trust in the medical industry and feeling taken care of. And so if you're in that space, it feels really important to dismantle and separate the obsession with weight and BMI from physical health and mental health. I hear what you're saying. And I think it's also a larger issue of the healthcare system being paternalistic and commanding or seeing what a patient or one must do to feel better, right? And and giving that as like, here's what you got to do. And if you don't do it, then you're not going to get to your goal. That needs to change. And I think that BMI and weight loss is, is one of the examples that really highlights that problem of paternalism in the healthcare system. My opinion on it is that I have had to fight through the way that I was trained in some ways of having that be one of the initial questions that you ask in, you know, a 15, 20 minute appointment. And the way that I approach it more now, well, first of all, I do much longer appointments at a minimum because like, what are you going to really do in that short time frame? Right. I've shifted it to say more of like, It's a perspective on what's like your actual goal. How do you actually feel? Because the image that someone gives out, you know, in physical form is not necessarily a reflection of the internal feelings. And so we do know that metabolically, if we look at metabolic science, that just because someone is at a higher weight or a lower weight, that doesn't necessarily give you an indication of what their internal metabolic status is. And the internal metabolic status is not something that is dependent just on weight. It's dependent on other factors like your emotional state and what you consume and also your sleep and all of these other things. And so is weight correlated directly to your your mood? Not necessarily for everyone, but is your internal metabolic and nutritional state have a correlation? You know, that's something that I do believe in that we need more data on. But the language and the the perceptions in society around someone's physical appearance, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. Like how that's truer more than ever now. You don't really know internally what's going on with somebody emotionally or physically or health wise based on how they look on the outside. And so I really do hope that that changes. And I think that that needs to change at an educational level within the medical training sector And it's slowly getting there. I mean, they are introducing more information about it. I don't know if I should say this, but I was looking at trying to get some more training and I I found came across this American Board of Obesity Medicine. And a lot of the courses and stuff are actually pretty interesting around metabolism. And I'm excited to do that. But then I thought about the name of the organization, American Board of Obesity Medicine. 
And I was like, that's kind of odd. Like, why isn't it like metabolic health or something? Pathologizing fatness, having fatness be seen as a disease rather than seen as an adjective and, and not a demon word. And not everyone who has extra pounds or, you know, overweight, whatever it is, that doesn't mean they have it. You can actually go and look and find someone who's thin and they could be super metabolically unhealthy and have insulin resistance and everything. And so we have to do a deeper dive at understanding and asking that question, how do you actually feel today? And how have you been feeling? And what are the things that are contributing to that? And focus more holistically on those factors and not pinpointing and demonizing somebody, making an assumption on how they look, right? And making assumptions based on how they look to how you think they might be logically performing. Well, and that brings me to something that's kind of a tangent about the space that you're operating in. You're definitely operating in the medical world, but you're also kind of in the tech world, the startup Bay Area culture. And as we were preparing, one of the apps that came up for me was this app called Fabulous. Do you know about I that? I don't. And that name is already kind of striking a bad chord with me. It's so cringy. And so the premise of the app is that it gamifies the habits that you want to develop. So they start you with how to drink eight glasses of water a day and you basically get little triggers and alerts and then you get points and they make it really splashy and fun for you to do like the right thing around your water intake. And then you can move to other things after you've done the week or two of regular water drinking. But in addition to just the general premise of let's get you to do more through gamification, it's this idea that we need a Pavlovian response to be ingrained in us in order to know how to take better care of us rather than what you just said, checking in with your physical body and your emotions and yourself in this way that cannot be programmed through an app. And I think while not the entire tech industry is built around this premise of like external to internal, it really should be internal to out, outward. How are we doing inside and then make those changes externally rather than like forcing this external structure on our bodies because we can't trust them to tell us what we need to know. And so I'm curious how you relate to that, because I do think, you know, taking a bunch of supplements can't, it's just a tool, so it can be used either way. But I think it's really important, the framework that you put around that and the language you use so that people feel like, oh, my insides matter. And they actually have a lot more information. Like if you sit quietly with yourself, you will be amazed what comes up, you know, like but I don't think we're told that that's a solution. <laughs> yeah. You know, the first thought I had when you were describing an app is like, what finance bro with no medical training or experience was like, let's monetize this and commercialize it because that's annoying. Oh my God. <laughs> the ads are like triggering. Yeah. It's like, how productive can your morning ritual be? This movement of biohacking and to be peak performance. I have to interject because that was so juicy, Sarah. Thank you. <laughs> One is like Noom and Calibrate, which I'm just going to name check. Like the amount of language they have about lifestyle change and they are weight loss apps. Like let's say it. Let's say it how we see it. And when you follow those prescriptions – you're maxing out at around 1,400 calories a day, regardless of what they are saying, which if there is anything in life 
anybody who has a mental health history with food, body, addiction in any way, go back in time and don't go on that 1400 calorie a day diet because that will fuck you up for the next 40 years. Like don't do that first line of Coke. Don't hit the pipe. Don't fucking go on that diet. That diet will kill you. And 40 years later, 50 years later, 60 years later, you will still be in the cycle. I hear that you are distinguishing yourself from other medical tech apps and products that promote positive lifestyle changes. But it is a tough space, man. I'm very like distrustful of the space, even though for the record, everybody, I bought PYM. She had it already. I have them in my house. I hack, oh, we're going to talk to this person. I was like, hold on, let me get them. She's like, I'm eating them right now. If if we gave in to that tech vibe and we were just promoting and pushing a product, we would probably have more sales. Okay, that's what we talked about. We're like, this is connected to sales and that's why these people do it. In general, yeah. The thing is, if we did and that was our pure focus is just like revenue generation, obviously marketing would change, the messaging would change, and we'd be pushing the way that you're describing these other companies. But that's not the intention. When I say nutritional metabolic health as a core principle of mental health, that doesn't necessarily focus on on weight. It actually doesn't focus on weight at all. If you're having 1,400 calories, you're probably leading to amino acid deficiencies and vitamin and mineral deficiencies. And so that's like obviously not healthy based on everything we just talked about. What I'm trying to say to people is like, hey, there are some nutritional changes you can make to help your mental health. Pick two or three things from this list and try to eat them this week, but tune into how your emotional state changes. I have an issue with some dietitians and nutritionists where they try to say, oh, we got to change your entire diet. It's like, what person who's already feeling anxious and like low mood no. is going to go make an overhaul on a diet in a week? But if you give them options and say, pick one or two of these and really tune into how you're feeling, to kind of what Sarah's saying is like, these apps are out there, but like your body is the ultimate app. And if you can tune in and actually pause and listen to like, hashtag your body's the ultimate app. And much of the work I do is that it's like allowing someone to to really pause because we go through life on autopilot and we move through it so quickly and we don't actually assess how we're feeling. And so, you know, I'm not doing like any type of rocket science. A lot of it in in day-to-day work is like allowing people to feel safe in a space with me, with others, with themselves, most importantly, which is the most difficult thing is to feel safe with yourself, in my opinion. And pausing and reflecting. Yeah, maybe we could talk about that. Yeah, I was just gonna say, basically, like, if you can pause and reflect and like, take you're basically constantly be taking inventory of how you're feeling, you start to gain that data. And then you create the Pavlovian or operant conditioning that works for you. That's not necessarily coming from an app, but which is essentially what rituals are like ritual making exactly rituals and habit formation for yourself that works. And so it's like, instead of having an app ping you, you'll actually be in tune enough with your body where it like pings you emotionally. And you're like, Oh, wait, this is what I need now. I'm feeling super tense and anxious. Like, okay, I need to like take a step back and breathe and go on a walk. And you start to build those techniques for yourself. Well, you know, um, so I'm also an addict and I had OCD or, 
you know, had to do exposure therapy and all that stuff. Everybody listening to this podcast knows that already. But the addiction piece, you do have to have the external structure come in and like dominate you before you can stop the behaviors enough to even be like, do I have a body? Like, what is going on? So there is a very important role of external structures. Maybe being paternalistic sounds derogatory, or it doesn't sound like it's given it its five stars, but the balance of having to have people just unequivocally say, your behavior is going to kill you. You need to listen to us, not you. And then step into some repair work before you're able to, um, you know, turn your body into an app. That's still collaborative. Like you're giving consent for them to be a part of your support network to treat you that way and to check you, right? That's what's important. Well, and it's a person. So you're connecting soul to soul, person to person, rather than like robot to soul, you know? That's You're completely right. And have a lot of individuals who have struggled with addiction and they've gone decades where they say, wow, like I never developed these intuitive skills or like recognize my emotions because I was just intoxicated the whole time for 20, 30 years. I'm like always talking about the 12 steps, but basically the 12 steps are a, a free version of accountability and habit changing from peer to peer. You know, you have to learn how guess what? Sober people brush their teeth in the morning and at night, and then they eat at various regular intervals. You know, there's this, the accountability intertwined with the 12 steps where you are in text or verbal communication with a sponsor or newcomers all the time in order to help maintain those new habits of not drinking and not engaging in self-harming behavior. Which, what is a community if it's not people who hold you accountable to like a certain set of norms and standards for wellness and happiness. And I mean, theoretically, right? Like the positive communities. Exactly. And that's like the key to the healing is having that community. And yeah, it's like something I learned a lot when I was initially, you know, doing my work in India through mines and we're working in super rural villages where, uh, people didn't necessarily have the words to describe mental health or there was a lot of stigma towards it. And the most magical thing, once we educated them and once we started to allow access to care for some of the individuals, like when the community saw that one person was starting to get better and they had an understanding, they all get behind it and support them. And they get better faster in a way because here in Western society, we're so individualized and independent that like, even this idea of like going to therapy, like you go to therapy on a one-on-one -on -one setting, right? One of the things in group therapy is it's group therapy where you're there with people who can also relate in some degree to what you're experiencing. And so there's power to that. And uh, for myself, right, I have a like a WhatsApp little men's group of really close guy friends. And we sometimes we share poetry, sometimes we share writing, but sometimes we just like get on a call and go through the things that we're struggling with. And so humans are social creatures and we need that. And so that's really what it's going down to. I think everything we're talking about too has made me think a lot the past couple of years about how do we really shift this mental health landscape and how can we go away from saying, you meet X criteria on this diagnostic scale. So you have major depressive disorder 
you meet this criteria, you have this disorder. And how do we say like, where are you at your point in life? And what exactly are you experiencing? And so thinking about context as the number one indicator, and there's key transitions, right, in context. So postpartum, pregnancy, relationships, breakups, going to college, retirement. These are things that we know in human experience that can oftentimes bring about loosely defined traumatic experiences. And so what I'm really trying to do moving ahead is creating a way of thinking about mental health in the form of context and transition points in life and integrating an individual group and metabolic health and spirituality. I love that. I've luckily not worked with therapists that have like really slapped a label on me, which I think can be really stigmatizing and you just kind of hold on to that as like your new identity. But um, well, sometimes it can help. Sometimes it can yeah, help I, when you are experiencing a can. variety of symptoms and you're like, what's going on with me? And it can help. It can help. But it's the first step. It's That's the first true. step. That's fair. Yeah, I do wish like, you know, like I kind of indirectly through Liz found out that I have like OCD symptoms <laughs> and that would have been helpful to label early on. But there's something about the isolation and like the one-on-one model of therapy that's shame heavy. It's really hard not to feel a ton of shame in therapy. And I don't know if that's like the reason for therapy is to create a safe space to you just like shame dump and then like get over yourself. But I think the model of group therapy is like, we're all going to face it together. There's something like slightly less. The premise is you're accepted by this community. Whereas something about going to a therapist is like, I'm so embarrassed about my issues that I have to go to this stranger like in a room by myself. I remember going and having a day job and being like, I don't want my colleagues to know. Just there's all this shame around going to like a single person therapy session, even though I love therapy and went for like 10 years. There's still that, uh, yeah, element. Yeah. But how can we make this less of a shameful thing to do? I've experienced that from like me being the the patient, actually, like me being resistant, right? And having a little bit of that. Maybe earlier in my training, I experienced it from a couple of people, but the way that I practice now is pretty different. I'm pretty hands-on and accessible. And I'm also appropriately vulnerable and honest about my own experiences. And I think that helps. And it's also like, I'm not, I'm not following like a CBT textbook procedure of therapy. I'm much more... I, I guess the best way to describe it is the way that I do therapy is an integration of somatic parts work, attachment work, and psychoanalysis, and bringing those all together. And so it's a very active form of therapy where if the person walks into the room and there's a form of resistance, we're going pretty deep somatic, and they're going to experience where the emotion is in their body, and it's going to come out. And I think that that allows for a level of comfort to develop quickly. I mean... Think about anyone in your life, right, that you meet that's new. Like you need to form trust with them over time and build that rapport. And so it's natural to have that with a therapist. I mean, I just think about what rehabs look like when people want the ultimate change as fast as you can get it. You take yourself out of your normal life. You go into a group. You're in Recovery Village and you are, you know, a team of people telling you about supplements and mental health drugs and some of those concepts of community and support actually do work 
to reprogram some of your neural pathways. You know, that for those first 90 days before you have any biological support from your insides of what you're trying to do. 66 days to form new habits. I, I agree with you, Elizabeth. I think there's a reason for a lot of the structure and things like that. However, I also think that the rehab space needs to evolve. Oh, and agreed. we need to start to help people integrate much better back into society and not just say, oh, you're here for 30, 45, 90 days, but let's start to engage you more. Because there's a recidivism rate with rehab, right? I remember talking about a friend of mine who had substance abuse problems and my therapist at the time said, well, you know, usually people go to rehab like six or seven times before it really kicks in. And- I'd, is that true? You know, a lot of people do go multiple times and it's natural, right? It's natural for you to relapse. Those things will happen and it's it's okay. You're still, you're healing and you're on that journey. Well, it seems crazy that it would only take the one time if you've built these habits. But up. for some people, it is the one time. Uh, basically what like, I always ask my patients who have dealt with substance use or substance misuse issues, like you know, what was it that really got you to change that this time, right? And it's always like, oh, well, I've been, I know the game, I know how it goes, blah, blah, blah. But like, the thing that gets them is like, something happened, where it started to come from within, the habit change came from within. And this goes back to your thing, what you brought up about the apps and the operant conditioning, like those things can tell you what to do. But until you internally instill it to have that motivation to change, it doesn't get ingrained emotionally and spiritually into your body and your mind and your aura for it to change. A close friend of mine, the way that he got there was like his girlfriend or fiance at the time was like, this is it. Like I've put up with this, this is it. And you know, something like that where has to hit you. And so but at the same time, I also believe that we should be helping individuals before they hit quote unquote rock bottom in traditional speak. Well, the the phrase your bottom is when you decide to stop digging, I think is very a, a very helpful expression. But what else can we do as part of their support network to allow them to gain the insight to actually instill that motivation for change? There are things we can do to be supportive to help guide somebody there as well. So just for the record, I was a one-time rehab person. I did rehab for 45 days, and then I went to an aftercare. But I lived there for three months. So this is long. This was three months plus 45 days. And then when I got out of that 90-day program, when I came back, it was psychiatrist, nutritionist with an eating disorder background, therapist, seven days a week of AA meetings, live in a sober house. I was out of treatment, but only in the- Technical term. Know, there was about 15 seconds a day where I could make my own decisions. It was a step-down program before I was responsible for my 24-hour cycle. But I just want to really second that one of the biggest impetus of change. I, I just think there's a lot of wisdom in the way you described that. I hit a point where I understood what this led to. It was no longer an illusion that if I lost the perfect amount of weight, I would get XYZ. That if I could mm -hmm. just drink sort of maintenance drinks so I could be loose and fun and happy, there was no world that had those as solutions 
that didn't mm. end in isolation and death. And when you really understand that, you know, you're ready. But part of how you can understand that is other addicts telling you that this mm -hmm. is what they saw at the end of their line. This is what's waiting for you. Look at me. Do you trust me? Because like, this is what wisdom I have to share with you. What we really need in society is we need people to share their story and to have a diverse range of stories. Your story might relate to one person. It's great when we have celebrities talking about their mental health, but a lot of people can't necessarily relate to that. And so the goal I've had for so long is like, how do we create a environment or society of safety and comfort where people are comfortable sharing their stories? Because if one person hears it and relates, that's how we create this change and collective healing as well. I just re-listened to one of our episodes where we interviewed two psychics and they did a reading for our podcast and they literally used that phrase. If one person hears one of your stories or one of your episodes and gets help, that's what you should focus on. And I kept thinking about that all day yesterday, like that exact line. If one person hears it, that should be enough. I think, and it comes back to what you said at the beginning of the talk is that storytelling is your passion and the thing that drives you. Yeah. When these companies and apps think about scale, why don't we just think about how do we scale stories? That's really what we need to be doing. Well, and what about your, your own story? And I think you and I had a similar experience in that it sounds like you were living alone during the early days of the pandemic, working a ton. I also coped very heavily with that immediate isolation. Let me make a new body of art. I'm going to write a memoir. I'm going to learn Spanish. You know, every waking hour was doing something to keep me occupied and having fun. I was in the Bay Area too. There was that one whole month where it was like smoky. And so we couldn't go outside and I couldn't see outside. I think a lot of people's mental health deteriorated. And you talked a little bit about how that was a turning point for you where you had to really check in with your habits and patterns. It's funny how work becomes a, a coping mechanism. I see things as like three buckets from a relational perspective. One is your relationship with your work and career and that. One is your relationship with others and one is your relationship with yourself. And if you have a hundred grains of rice or salt or whatever, you have to allocate them accordingly. And so I've been really good at like allocating them all primarily into the first two <laughs> and not really into the last one. And so, you know, work is a defense mechanism. I was living alone. I was actually in Los Angeles during COVID at LA County USC for my psychiatry training. And it was pretty rough. You're working nights in a in-unit psych unit and like Compton, you're like the only physician. We started to help cover the COVID cases as well. It was very difficult and I thrive in those like work settings and, you know, help to create new structures and how we're going to do stuff and kind of like the chaos and making organized chaos in some ways, but it gets to you. And then emotionally, personally, I was also dealing with some things. And so everything kind of came to a head July 3rd, 2020, and I was just totally fried, paralyzed in my bed and pretty strong chronic suicidality thoughts. And it was difficult. It got to a pretty dark place, but I am fortunate that I have a community of folks and friends who are like family as well. And so I'm able to reach out to individuals. But in that moment for a while, that was even difficult to do. And what I really gained from it is this perspective of like, damn, that was like really shitty. But this is like a sliver of what 
some or a lot of my patients experience regularly and what can I do from this experience now? And a lot of it just came down to me changing and shifting my perspective on like how I ask certain questions. Well, it's really hard to be fully compassionate without a certain level of personal experience. Yeah. And I've experienced debilitating anxiety and, you know, very strange relationships with food, but like that level of depth was a kick to me. And it was like, you know, fine. I can ask like, have you ever felt depressed in the past few weeks? What does that even mean? Tell me how you've really been feeling and what you've been experiencing. And when you say you were depressed, what does that mean for you? Like, how do you experience depression? When someone says I'm happy, it's like, how do you experience happiness? How do you experience joy? What is that for you? Because if we ask those types of questions, then we can help the individual start to tap into those physical and like emotional feelings of those experiences versus like intellectually telling them to do it. I have a quick question about medical school. Everything I've ever seen about the psychological impact of medical school is that it is deeply traumatizing to medical students because of the lack of sleep, the hours and the rate at which you have to learn and how fast you have to sort Mm -hmm. of process through these different fields. How do you think it would change the mental health field if medical schools were not as traumatizing to their students? I don't really have an answer to that. I will say one thing about my experience with medical school, though, is that it was very difficult, but I've always felt it to be a privilege to be able to do that, to be able to have anatomy lab and have this individual who's donated themselves for our learning, to have the opportunity to like be a part of people's lives. Having that curiosity is really what got me through and finding a community of people that I was able to study with, to lean on in very difficult times. That's what helped me, you know, props to where I went to medical school, honestly, at UMass Medical, like our dean of students and our faculty were very on it. They created a very supportive community that was wanted us to learn and thrive. And that's not to say that we didn't have all of that other trauma and that it wasn't difficult. And, you know, you're going through understanding patient deaths. You're waking up at 4 a.m. to go to like do a surgery. All of that is there. And that is really difficult. But if the medical schools can start to instill the type of community that my medical school did for us, I think we can really shift the experience a lot. I was just thinking, so sleep deprivation. I had a baby nine years ago and that first six months of sleep deprivation, it is torture. It's literally like your feet are on flames. I have never experienced such torture in my life. So I would like to, if anybody's in charge of a medical school, listening to this, let your students sleep enough. If there could be one change I could implement, let people sleep. I have a weird sleep relationship as well. And I've gotten way better at it in the past few years. But it also takes like certain personalities that lean towards medical school, right? And and some of it is that kind of like type A type of thing. Yeah, we had moments of poor sleep. But what I'll say is a lot of my colleagues in medical school, my friends, they actually really prioritized health and wellness. They did sleep. We did socialize a lot. And, you know, we had a good community like at the gym and people would hang out there and study and, and, and work out. And, you know, there was a good network. I haven't necessarily promoted my medical school in this way, but thinking back on it, it was pretty unique in a lot of ways. And it's still like one of the top med schools in the country. 
you know, we it made us better physicians, I think, because of all of that and to have that supportive environment. Well, that just goes to show you don't need to have this hazing mentality for your students to have a good experience. There's a way to help somebody build grit and resilience without having to haze them. Yeah, because you do need that skill. I want my doctor to be able to perform whatever they need to do, regardless of their life circumstances. I trained in the East Coast for medical school, and I grew up in the, the Harvard medical system with my dad working there and done research there. And that's like, you know, you have East Coast stereotype of medical training is you're in the OR and the surgeons throwing things around if they're angry. And then you come to the West Coast and it's way more chill and you know, but, but there's a, there's a balance between the two and, and there's a way to be Socratic, but also compassionate and teaching. That made me think of kind of this idea of the alternative medicines that you're investigating now. You said you're getting into psychedelics. Is that microdosing? I haven't done too much around microdosing, to be honest, other than personal experiences and supporting some friends. But I am looking more into the power of how can we integrate psychedelics into the larger kind of healing journey and helping someone feel whole so they can heal. And so in particular for me, and psilocybin has been very powerful in having a deeper understanding of my own anxieties and my own parts of me and integrating that into a whole self. And now I'm on this path of healing, which is the next step. And so I just think that we, we don't have very great treatment options for a lot of folks, not for everyone, but for a lot of folks within certain states or mental health conditions. And so there's a lot of opportunity. And so I've been digging deeper and deeper into the research side of how do we use psilocybin for things like addiction, particularly now we're trying to start a study looking at psilocybin for methamphetamine use disorder. I'm also very interested in relationships with food, disordered eating patterns, and so looking into that and trying to develop a study, looking at that particularly for men in, as well. And so, yeah, that's kind of the lens that I, I, I've been taking with, with psychedelics is they're not the answer. They're another tool, but the work comes from the one thing, which is what we've been saying repeatedly throughout the past hour that we've been talking, which is like allowing yourself to pause and to be with yourself and actually take note of your body's own cues and the psychedelics are one of the tools that can help you with that. Holotropic breathwork is another tool. Meditation is another tool, you know, and therapy is a tool. Not everyone should do all of them. There's times, there's roles, there's certain spaces. And that's my perspective on that. In the 12-step world in the Bay Area, people are who have long-term sobriety and take sobriety seriously are open to psychedelics and as part of a mental health treatment plan. I do not want to speak for AA. Nobody represents its platform. This is personal, not AA's platform. But there are definitely people who feel like it is consistent with their sobriety. I have one question that I want to ask about it because I've been really intrigued by psilocybin and mental health and it's like opening blockages. In my life, I've tripped on mushrooms once and it was like the worst thing that has ever happened to me. And I won't bore everybody with me talking about my trip, but just let, let's say it was a journey to hell. Is is that indicative of like that person should never think about this type of treatment? No. I mean, it, what happens when you do microdose? Do you get some of the hallucinogenic 
properties or is it more like a one hit of marijuana? Yeah, I mean, microdosing actually means you're doing a dose where you shouldn't be having those quote, psychedelic effects, actually, you're doing below that threshold. So you wouldn't have those. Yeah, you actually shouldn't really notice a big difference at all. But over time, it has sort of a serotonergic effect, and you'll see an increase in mood and so forth. To, to your point, Elizabeth, I think that it's not an exclusion. I would say that there's a lot of factors to psychedelics. And the biggest factors are intention and the setting that you're in and the environment you're in. If you're in a place where you don't feel safe, even if you consciously feel safe, but your body unconsciously doesn't feel safe, you're probably not going to have a great experience. And so it's not about going in and saying, okay, I'm going to go do like a bunch of mushrooms because I heard it helps for mental health. It's like you've been working with someone or you've been working with yourself or with whatever guide and, and therapist, and you've developed and gotten yourself to a point where you're saying, okay, I think that this is a tool that can help. And I trust this person to help me do it and be along that journey with me. Getting ketamine meal to your house to do it is like probably not the answer. And I have a lot of issues with that whole side of things, but developing rapport and a therapeutic relationship and having a practice in place and then doing a psychedelic experience and then processing all of that and investing time into processing all of that, that can be beneficial. Well, and then that brings into a question that I've had about our conversation, developing the spiritual life through all of this. Yes, your therapist can definitely be a guide. Yes, like different communities. But as someone who's doing energy work and like mediumship, you know, and studying in that realm, depending on who you ask, that sixth sense is kind of where we're evolving. I think it's Gary Zukov talks about the sixth sense. So like, how do you see that factoring in to the future of mental health, if at all. You know, it's okay that you maybe No, don't, I do, but, um, clearly, because I have my own spiritual practices too. Traditionally, there's this like the biopsychosocial model of looking at mental health. That's cool. Let, what a fancy Venn diagram graphic, right? But like the spiritual and emotional side needs to be in that too. And it is a huge component of it. It's on the individual to really develop what their spiritual practice is. It is right? You know, it's on the healthcare system to allow accessibility to different modalities. And I think the way that it should factor in perhaps is that treatment providers, whether it's a therapist or a physician, actually start asking about that. And with curiosity and asking like, what is your spiritual right? Like, it doesn't have to be the word spiritual practice either. It could be like, what actually works for you, what makes you feel good and what makes you feel grounded and learning from those and then collaboratively coming up with a treatment plan that integrates all those things. And it actually comes back to a point we had earlier, which is like, it's a shift in the way that doctors and therapists interact with their patients and clients, right? Away from the scripted intake approach. How are you feeling? How have you been feeling? What's been helping you? And those questions are not only empowering the individual and making them actually feel like they have a say, right? It's actually forcing them also to pause and to start to process and ask those questions for themselves. And that helps enhance the spiritual practice. That makes so much sense to me. As a medium, for example, I don't trust a Western psychologist with traditional training to talk about the things that I experience necessarily. 
I would have to know so much about the person. Like, do you believe in life after death? Do you believe in reincarnation? I don't know that they need to be totally aligned with me on everything in order to have a good trusting relationship. I just may not talk about certain things with the therapist that don't pertain to that part of my life. But you know what I mean? How do you integrate something like that? You don't have to agree with them. They don't have to agree with you. But it's about being compassionate. And so it actually is like an interesting example of, you know, sometimes I have individuals where I don't agree with their views, right? And so, for example, like someone who's like super conservative and even lots of elements of racism, I don't agree with those views, right? But I can be compassionate to understand, okay, what is it that's getting them to this state? Be respectful, but also understand what is causing them distress and like, let's help and meet middle ground somehow there. And that's the power, right? I think in modern society, we've actually been quick to not try to have that curiosity and understanding, like, why is this person have this viewpoint? Obviously, there's some people who are just like bad, right? There are bad people in the world. Fine. But the majority, it's like, we need to have a conversation of discourse to some degree. If you can do that, then you can actually understand someone at a deeper level and maybe actually find some more common ground. Just to your point of like, you don't necessarily need to agree with somebody, but you can still start to trust them if like, they are respectful and compassionate for your views and they incorporate that into into the conversation. Well, I mean, also to Sarah's point, like if the provider working with you thinks you are exhibiting severe psychosis because you're talking about seeing ghosts. That is like, that's another yeah, yeah situation. I do think on the West Coast, there's a lot more fluidity with that world. Well, the key is like really how much of it is taking over your life. And how do you talk about it? I think there's Again, back to the body, when somebody says something that's true, it resonates in a way that's different. When something isn't resonating, you you can feel that inherently. And I would hope that therapists are pretty good at doing that. I definitely agree with you. You can tell the difference when it's a psychosis that's causing distress in somebody versus like, oh, these are some values and principles that they, it's a belief system that they have and it's not actually impairing their life. It's enhancing it. You know, there's differences like that. That's interesting. If I think back to my Boston days of growing up there, right? And I go back and I say some of the stuff I hear about in like Venice Beach, I could see a traditional 70 year old psychiatrist being like, whoa, they need an antipsychotic or something. It's just like, we have a lot to learn from one another. And leading with just openness is the key to that. I love that. And I feel like that's a good place to end just thinking about Leading into the future with openness. Yeah. I mean, we have to heal individually and as a society. And right now, my approach is helping people feel whole so they can heal. But society right now also doesn't feel whole. So it's not going to be able to heal. And that's really what we need. And that comes from being open and curious. Thank you so much, Raghu. Thanks so much for having me. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for side-wooing with us. We release episodes every other week on Thursday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast for good karma points. Until we meet again in the woo.